And then Connor is going to drop in some other stuff, like the, the little snippets I did with the over 30 players. And also he's going to drop in my prediction of the Olympics being in and my prediction of Paul Call winning. Oh, God, do we have to listen to that crap? It's not for you guys. It's for our listeners. <laughs> okay. You just got to tell me when to, you got to cue it up and then I'll know where to drop it in. I'll have a big smile on my face. You'll know. Yeah. Just wake me up when you're done. <laughs> About to leave. Already packing. Come with me. I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. What about this? This call is being recorded. Fans, we are back for another edition of the Roundup, catching up with the weekly headlines, results, and news from the professional tour. And I'm joined with my co-hosts, Bill Buckingham and PJ Paul Johnson. Welcome to the show, boys. Good afternoon, lads. Uh, it's been a while, yeah. It's uh, a rather eventful period between uh, now and the last time we had a conversation. I'm looking forward to this one, I must say. Why, what happened? What's going on? I've been traveling a bit. What's that? What's going on? Oh, we just had this kind Little. of the US Open was on last week. We've got the Rugby World Cup going on. Uh-huh. Mustafa Sal will be turning up in Zurich next week. Apart from that, nothing really major to talk about, but a few things. Well, to put it mildly, um, when we say headlines, results, and news, this doesn't get any bigger for us, right, boys? Bill was going to take all the credit, basically, for this, and um, and I think we have to, right, PJ? Listen, I mean, I agree entirely uh, Connor, it's it is the biggest moment in our sport. The Olympic Games, gold medal. The gold medal now will be the pinnacle of our career. And there's probably three people I would say that have been instrumental in this coming into the 2028 Olympics. You've got Brian Roberts, CEO of Comcast. Mark Walter, obviously of Guggenheim Capital. Instrumental without those two, especially. Then I don't think we would be talking about what we're talking about today. And then not to forget Phil Buckingham <laughs> from Connecticut. <laughs> Uh, honestly, we uh, it, literally they have uh, single-handedly saved our yeah. sport. PJ, PJ, I'm humbled by that, but just know this is bigger than me. Rarely is there anything that I would say is bigger than me, but this is much bigger than me. Now, no, you're being too, too, too modest. Being too modest. Yes. When I woke up this morning after I got up really early to watch the vote in Mumbai, rubber stamp, but you never know, things may happen. But once that happened, I, I took a step back and reflected and thought about all the other, the PJs of the world, the people who were in this sport well before me. The trailblazers, if you will, the Jahangir Khans, the Paul Johnsons, just everything and everything. Just first of all, I'm extremely flattered that you, I've even been mentioned in the same sentence as Jahangir Khan. By yeah, the way. no, it's, I appreciate it, it in okay. my in my eyes. Right. I, I, and I step back and said, you know what? I, I am such a small, not, not even a spoke in this wheel. I'm not even like a cog in this machine, like minuscule. It's so minuscule. But then, for some reason, PSA and the World Squash Federation tweeted out a video trumpeting. That that squashes in the Olympics. In the first six seconds, there's a voice, just this voice that, that hit, and it was talking about Paul and when you don't have your best stuff. And the, I said, I recognize that voice. Should we? Cue? Yeah, you know. Yeah, well, yeah. Well. Paul, the mark of a true champion is knowing how to fight through and get the victory when you do not have your best stuff. Oh my goodness, he's going to get this. Oh, he's got it. Well, that is absolutely ferocious hitting. Oh, that is an absolute Yes, that is exactly what I was talking about. So that, that then it made me think. Bill's ego jumped up and said, wow, maybe I did put us in the Olympics. Is that possible? Well, and also now PJ has me questioning. Bill spoke with such certainty that we were already in. Yeah, more, more the fools us forever doubting it, really. But I think we did have an episode where we were just flat out asked whether we felt that we were in or not. You and I both denied the fact that squash would yeah. be in adamant with our reactions obviously but then there was bill who was pretty certain that that it would be in the 2028 la olympics and here we are a few weeks later and yeah and you know what i don't really know how to explain it because obviously pj we have you on because of your knowledge of the sport you have more knowledge in your pinky about this sport Mm -hmm. from the pro side than than connor and i have in our whole bodies and then i thought like paul call just won the u.s open and i know we do predictions on that and I think I may have predicted that too. So I'm wondering, I, I don't have that nod. Do I have a gift? Is it a gift? 
Is that what they call it? Something uh, that can't be taught? Yeah. It's I an mean, expression that comes to mind that even a blind squirrel finds in uh, every once in a while, but I could yeah. be wrong here. Interesting. Okay. You yeah. know what? I, th- this is this humbly, I'm going to say, let's step back and we could talk about me for the next hour and a half to two hours if we wanted to, but we won't. So just a reg- just a regular show, <laughs> just, then? a regular show this week, guys. <laughs> just a nor- just a normal show. But no, all, all kidding aside, guys, we're in the Olympics. Squash yeah. is in the Olympics. It, yeah. It's it's hard to believe. We I think we all were waiting for the other shoe to drop and for something to come along or somebody to come along and put the kibosh on it. But it didn't happen. And as of this morning, squash squash is in the Olympics, and now we're in. So I, I always always hearken to the saying to the dog that has been chasing that car every day, the car goes by and the dog chases it. The dog caught the car. Now what happens? Yeah. And anybody yeah. like, where do we go from here? We've reached the pinnacle of our, of sport basically in the Olympics. Like where does, where do we go from here? Yeah. Um, that's obviously the million dollar question, but can we not just all just take a little bit of a step back and just enjoy oh, the yeah. moment? Because I'm already seeing all the pessimists on Facebook and Instagram and all the social media platforms already knocking it, saying it's only going to be in this one time. What about 2032 and blah, 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 blah. This is something that's been going on for probably 25, 30 years. In 2010, we had the disappointment of thinking that we were in the London Olympics, then only to be told that there wasn't going to be a demonstration sport for that particular game. So we had all of that, that negativity to deal with. Here we are 18 years later and we're in. So let's just enjoy that. Sit back and enjoy the fact that we are going to be in and it is going to be a, it's going to be a game changer for our sport. The fact now with the increased profile that it's going to be given, the opportunities that are going to present themselves and the chance to start inspiring these up and coming generations and also giving these bloody players the kudos they deserve. There's some of the fittest athletes in the world and it's, Anyway, without getting too, without ranting too much about it, it's been a long time coming and it's thoroughly deserved. The players are now, they're going to get some recognition for their efforts and their hard work. So I, I think it, I'm just going to enjoy it for the time. I being. think it's just a microcosm of where our society is today and with the short attention spans <laughs> that everyone has with yeah. everything that everyone yeah. was so excited this morning when it got in that five minutes later, it's only a 32 draw and there's no doubles. And what about, like you said, what about 2032? Yeah. I, I think it, yeah. it's the way everything is these days. Like it just comes and goes so quickly. Yeah. And if it weren't for people like us who are going to continue to bang this drum for the next three and a half years, it, it would devolve. And by the end of it, we'd be like, we're so glad that we didn't, we'd be like, God, I wish we weren't in the Olympics, but it's such a big deal. And I agree with you, PJ, step back, enjoy it, embrace the moment. So a couple questions going in. So 32 draw, that's one of the big ones, obviously. So let's get into the nuts and bolts of it. A 32 draw obviously doesn't seem that big for the Olympics, but I think what it does is it makes the imprint very small, which was probably appealing to the IOC. It it could be done in, in a short period of time, just a men's and a women's draw question now is two i'm hearing two players per country do you guys have a little bit more insight on that and how that will work in regards to the psa rankings and so forth i don't know much about the 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 whole the ranking situation but i do know that each nation will be offered uh two slots per draw so two women from egypt in the women and the women's draw obviously and two men in the men's draw Um, that obviously will then give players a little bit further down an opportunity from the countries, your Jamaicas and your Chinas and, and places like that. So they've now got four and a half years, basically, to raise up their level. I'm assuming it will go off of the PSA World Tour rankings. I don't know if anything else is going to get put into place where they can select which players will come from which nations. But uh, there's still going to be so much more to figure out between now and then. Yeah, I, I can add some color to that too. And this is going off of a little bit of the how we did selection for the Pan Am Games, which was which is now just going to have way more meaning, these qualifying events to the Olympics. So there's a few different pathways that can happen. The cap of two players per nation is definitely going to be there, but there's going to be a ranking ceiling. So whether it's, I don't know if it might be a top 32 or top 50, there's going to be, be a demarcation of automatic ends. And then there's going to be other ways that they can qualify. So whether it's through the Commonwealth Games or through the Asian Games or through those other pathways, and then potentially even direct qualifications for countries that don't have those games, that they'll probably be a wild card or 
a qualifying event for that. So a specific way. This really gives meaning to when we hear about Olympic trials, right? And that's a big deal. This is going to set the like the road to 2028 is going to be a huge story to tell. The biggest story and really starts today for every anyone who is on the fence of what is this sport? Maybe I got a shot. <laughs> Olympic trials would be an incredible. Can you imagine an, an Egyptian Olympic trials? If it took place right now, it, it, as the person who sat two rows behind me in Houston, and that's what I'm going to call my inside sources for squash going forward, because people don't want their names to be named when they give me inside information, said it would probably be the greatest PSA tournament ever if it was televised just because of the, the ramifications of it in that country. And I, I totally agree. It would just be an incredible spectacle. With the big nations like that, it's going to be more off of the rankings, right? So no, I know. Just... Ends. But, but yeah, and not to jump the gun a little too much from what we're talking about here, but it's going to be interesting of who represents what flags. When... That's, that's going to be a big deal, Connor, right? Like country jumping? So I did I not apply for my Italian citizenship this morning? Is that what you're asking? I feel with if I start practicing and training up, maybe hire a coach like uh, one Paul Johnson to tra- start training me that I may represent Italy in the in the Olympics. Yeah. Is that possible? But all, all kidding aside, that's going to be a thing, right? Like pe- people like jumping countries to try to because they're not going to be able to make the top two in their country, but could easily be number one even in another country. Yeah, really, this comes down to both the dream of being Olympian, as well as also the financial benefits of doing that. If you're maybe, let's call it number eight, on the Egyptian side, you have any other ties to any other country, you're going to likely be incentivized. And I know, PJ, you've been around the block to see this. And what's your take on um, what the athletes, the calculus that they'll be doing? I agree. I think certain players are going to look at their their situations and just realistically give themselves the best shot of jumping ship so to speak Uh, we've seen it in the UK some English players have moved across to other United Kingdom uh, countries we've seen Marwan and Mohamed El Shabagi now have come across and and they're playing for England Peter Nickel did the same in the 90s and early 2000s John White did the same leaving Australia going to Scotland so I I agree entirely We, we will see a lot of this sort of happening one aspect there just because it, it depends on which games we're talking about but for the olympics it's team gb right so great britain so yeah. a guy yeah. like right now if we went off the rankings joel macon she's not on the list because that'd be scotland england and wales correct and northern ireland yeah, let's not forget the power that is Northern Ireland in squash. True, that's very true. This is not unusual for the Olympics overall. You see this a lot in the Olympics with when you watch. This, I watch the summer games more than the winter. Is you see all of a sudden you see a guy like who was like a you saw him play college like track and field or tennis, and now he's representing like Zimbabwe or something, and it turns out like his great grandmother lived there. And it, it is not unusual at all for this to happen. It'll be interesting for us because we're so close to the sport. So when we see a guy or a girl we know jump a country, we'll be like, holy crap. But in the big scheme of things, yeah. not a big deal. It happens all the time. So I'm, I'm looking up my ancestral tree right now just to see what <laughs> small country that is very weak in squash right now. And I don't really necessarily want to play. I just want to carry the flag for that country. Or the water. <laughs> Onward from there, where in L.A., I don't know LA that well, Connor. I don't know if you do or if PJ, if you do. It's not like New York or Boston or these Northeast cities that we know pretty well in some of the countries that we know and say, hey, this is an iconic spot to drop a court. I don't know that squash will get its choice in that. I think it will probably give suggestions. But I'm just thinking about iconic spots in the LA area where a glass court could be dropped that, that would give it some little pizzazz. I really don't know it well enough. I think to, to no. your point, what happens is this becomes um... – Part of the strength of including squash in the Olympics is how agile we can be in terms of the venue setup. So we could be oftentimes what happens is like where the Olympic Village is by comparison to all the outer fields versus downtown. You can really showcase a major sport like this in a high traffic area. So that will become appealing. And then, yeah, I don't know the map well enough at all, but I was thinking of uh, we talked about the road to 2028, but hey, what about Manhattan Beach or Venice Beach or something like that doing an Olympic qualifying or just an exhibition, right? Getting people to like learn about the sport and uh, yeah. I think that'd be pretty cool. What, one of the other things just to talk about the 
sort of impact or what does this actually mean, right? Because we've talked about this and I still don't know concretely what this will be, but I can talk broad strokes and, you know, immediately dollars are going to be coming into the sport as these countries want to try and um, even just getting an Olympian in for certain countries is a huge deal. Like Belgium trying to get more people involved can list a bunch of others, but then also how do we support them to try and become medal winners? Right. And so whether that's for England or for, for America, like that's important, but imagine another country who really wants to get this like Egypt, they're going to spend a lot more money behind this because they want to make sure that they cement that. But the four buckets that came to mind was direct athlete support, officiating, infrastructure build out, and then really this general commercial viability. And under each one of those dollar specific dollars from the government and or outside dollars coming in the sport are really going to, I would say, minimum $50 million to probably north of 100, if not 200 million over the next couple of years. Like minimum. Where does that money go, cool. Connor? Does that go to the national yeah. governing bodies? So I think a few different ways there, either directly from the government. I'm gonna just going to use the other countries because the U.S. is the outlier, not the norm. Sport England will now look at England squash and say, hey, let's amp up the amount of dollars we're supporting them because now there's going to be direct benefit to if we support them trying to win podiums and medals. So that will be to the overall infrastructure of supporting the athletes will get more direct benefits and will be better supported. But then building out the um, courts, England, which has a really strong infrastructure already, but maybe other countries, I don't know, I don't know the Belgium structure, but maybe they're going to want a better center, maybe a glass court there. So spending behind infrastructure build. But then the athletes, corporate dollars saying, hey, we really want to tie ourselves to Olympians and tell that story, help and get ambassadors where you can imagine now in Egypt, all of these now future Olympians are going to just get a, their stock is rising. Like the, the sport of squash and the athletes, everyone's stock just went up 30% minimum. Now that we're in and there's a glow and this week, I'm sure, and I'm sure this will wear off like everything does. And what will happen now is, I think anyways, I hope it doesn't, is credit grabbing. People taking credit for squash getting in Olympics. So we're going to put me aside for now because so I won't muddy those waters. But I was thinking about it and looking through the old videos, the old campaign videos, just thinking back to when we first got involved with, with squash in the Olympics, Connor and I, especially working for the national government body in the United States. And to me, the big difference and really one of the few difference, the only difference uh, between then and now is one man and it's Mark Walter. Mark Walter's investment in the sport this past year and his connections with Los Angeles. I have to say, if they people really put a microscope to this, he's got to be the one who gets the most credit for this. Yes or no? I think this has been a collective effort by quite a few people who may not get the recognition that Mark gets, but I would agree. I would say that without Mark Walters and Guggenheim Capital, I don't think we would be in the Olympics, but I don't think it's solely no, agreed. Mark. Agreed. But, no, but he's the, he pushed it. it over the line, right? I think, yeah, he was, he would have been a, a deciding factor without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah. And listen, Mark's a great guy. He's a wonderful supporter of the game. He's put on the first ever million dollar tournament. He appreciates the players and what they, how hard they work for for the little reward that they get. So he's one of these guys who just gets it. He he loves his sport, and he also, if you look at what he does, whatever he seems to touch turns to gold. So he's got that kind of that ability of uh, making things work, and with the connection that he's got, sure, in LA and everything else, it's just we will be forever indebted to Mark and. I know that he he appreciates it. It's hard not to look at Mark and say that he's likely one of the key difference makers to help get that over the goal line. But it's also hard. I think the three of us here are, are privy to a lot of information that the outside public yeah. isn't. But really, this is the collective front that we put together. When you look at that bid video, it's impressive. And the, the hour and a half long presentation, and it really was the PSA working with U.S. Squash, working in the World Squash Federation, where the to the outside, we have now really anything that was initially holding us back, whether it's the officiating, the broadcasting, which were a big deal back then, we have now solved for it. We're putting on a great front. I think that alone may not have been enough, but I also just didn't want to 
not recognize the collective front that we are putting through to the public. And, and But without a person like Mark, I think that was a difference maker. Agreed. You know, what was funny about, I watched the Mumbai presentation this morning is the squash part of the video heavily featured Mistal, who, according to every, everybody leading up to this, was the reason we weren't going to make the Olympics. Is like everything you read, we're not going to get the Olympics if people like this are leading our sport in all the videos of Mustal, which was absolutely hilarious. So PJ, before we move on from the Olympics, tell me this, PJ, Joey Barrington, NBC yeah. calls you. Hey guys, it may be AM in the morning when we're watching this on Bravo, but we need people to announce this. Would that be like the pinnacle of your career, PJ? Announcing Without a career, shadow yeah. of a doubt. Without a shadow of a doubt, yeah. It's on a whole different spectrum, this kind of deal. And listen, I think Joey and the entire Squash TV crew have done with the resources that we've got an unbelievable job to bring the product to where it is. None of us were ever educated in journalism or media or marketing or any of those kind of aspects or areas. So for us to to do as well as we're doing with the means that we've got, hats off to the entire crew right across the board, commentary team and the back staff and everything. So what a dream that would be for something like an NBC. But listen, if you listen, ever listen to those presenters and those commentators, they are seamless. They're absolutely brilliant. They're, they're the best in the business, the, the golf, the tennis, the American football. They're brilliant. So we, I think we've got a hell of a long way to go. But what we do have is obviously a terrific knowledge of the sport itself. So who knows? It could be time to go back to college and start to get the books out and start studying there, again. Because, there there um, could also be a little a little 17-year-old Amina Orphy of announcing out there just gunning for the 2028 Olympics, right? Oh, you bet your life that there's some, there's going to be a few kind of a few people coming out that would work for sure. <laughs> so that being said, Connor, we and we'll introduce this segment as we leave our our Olympic and get, hop into the U.S. Open. A lot of thirty plus players still on the PSA tour. This announcement comes; it's 2028, a little bit down the road. So we went around and asked, and quite a few of the plus thirty tour players if they're going to stick around for the Olympics for 2028. And here are some of the answers. See if you could recognize some of these voices. Will you still be playing and will you be involved in the Olympics in 2028? Yeah, 100%. Uh, as long as my body holds up, I'll be there. It's a nice target for us to, you know, we've been waiting for this for years, so I wouldn't miss the opportunity to uh, be able to represent New Zealand at the Olympics. <laughs> I'll be 35, so I don't think I will. I don't think I will. I, I hope I... Uh, no, 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 I don't think I will. I don't. A once-in-a-lifetime chance, man. So I'm trying to stick as long as I can, as long as I enjoy my squash and see how it goes. Well, I wish I could play again, but uh, right now, yeah, I'm, uh, I, I would be like too old, I guess. Uh, it would have been a pleasure to play, but uh, way too old. And uh, uh... well, uh, I will make sure to uh, to still be fit and ready to play it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, unfortunately, I don't think so. I feel like uh, it will be a bit too late for me. And the bigger question, Raneem Elbalili, who you happen to know pretty well, will we see Raneem Elbalili making a comeback for the Olympics? Yeah, she started to get a few messages asking her for like a five-year plan, but I also don't think so. It's not going to happen for, uh, for, our, uh, for anyone in our household, unfortunately. Well, all I can tell you, if Ali pushes for it, I'll push for it. I'll only push for it if this guy in front of me, Ali, push for it too. We only push for it together. <laughs> well, let's wait until the news are confirmed first, but then if it is... Definitely, I'll, I've always aspired to play at the Olympic stage, but whether I'll be at the level uh, that uh, awards uh, an Olympic place is a big question mark in four and a half years, but I'll do my very best. And as Mohammed said, if he's there, I'll be there. <laughs> if anyone who's listening to Squash Radio, a little fan feedback, if you could tell us in order who those folks were who were telling us about their wishes for either staying or not staying for the 2028 Olympics, you will win a huge Squash Radio prize. We won't say what it is yet, but you will win a, a huge prize. So please, uh, squashradio at gmail.com, submit your entries. We'll go over them on the next episode. All right. I actually think it, I think the prize should be an afternoon lunch with Bill Buckingham. <laughs> and then I don't think too many people will enter the draw. So. <laughs> they, they know they'd be paying. That'd be the issue. All expenses yeah. paid. All expenses lunch paid. with Bill Buckingham. It's, oh, we got note takers. Okay. So the U.S. Open just concluded. 
fan, just a fantastic tournament. There were so many great storylines in that tournament. And obviously with the Olympics hanging over that, there was a lot of buzz going around the, the arena. I was there for a few days. I know, Connor, you were there for a few days. PJ, obviously you were there for the whole thing. Let's get into it. PJ, since you, you were there from beginning to end, give yeah. us your overview of the event. Yeah. One of the best of I can remember, actually, one of the best in a few years. Obviously, the centre there, the Island Spectre Centre, is state-of-the-art. It is one of the best on the world tour. One area I would like, I know this is almost impossible given the scheduling, but one thing I would like to see change is try to have all matches on one glass court. I just sense that at times we'll have anywhere from 1,500 to 2,000 people in there, and that just gets spread so thin between the two courts that you can actually lose some of the atmosphere. And then you get sort of fans divided between you, you at the same time, you could have two really high quality matches on at the same time. So it makes it you know, a little bit difficult in that respect, but right the way across the board with the Kim Clerkin and Ryan and the entire team of us squash, Kevin Clipstein was around for quite a bit of it, which was nice to see him around. It's just so much, they've been there for a few years now, so they know the situation. It's just so professionally run the way that there's so much that goes on behind the scenes to get the players on court on time and, and for the show to run as smoothly as it does. And everybody played their part in, like I said, probably the, one of the best U Open, US Opens I can remember. Players are always made to feel extremely welcome. And we say this with a lot of these kind of tournaments, Tournament of Champions the same, Qatar's the same. When the players are as well received as they are at the uh, here at the US Open, it reflects in their play and the quality of their squash. They're obviously happy to be there. So from my personal standpoint, I was absolutely thrilled to to have such a great week there and the squash didn't disappoint. Yeah, it's cool with the Spectre Center is the players hang around. Even if they, after they get eliminated, a lot of players were still around. You see them playing every morning when you walk in, hitting with different people, around mm. staying around Philadelphia. The Philadelphia has a lot to do with the plethora of courts available to them in the ability to have high quality practices with players. But yeah, no, I agree, PJ. So let's get into the tournament itself. No surprise on the women's side. She just keeps rolling along. Her first, surprisingly, her first ever U.S. Open win. I know she's come close before, but Noral Sherbini, it seems like we're on replay whenever we talk about these uh, these post postmortems on these platinum events, hoisting the trophy once again, Noral Sherbini. Just a, a, an incredible performance. Really, the only match she was really in trouble with was Gina Kennedy, right? So she was down 2-1 to one to Gina Kennedy, which was a weird match, right? She started out, I think she beat Gina 11-1 to one in the first game. Looked like she was going to, Gina looked like she didn't even belong on the same court with her. You, bl- you blink, yeah. and Gina's up 2-1, to one, ready to almost win this match. And then, boom. 6-2 in the 4th. 6-2 in the 4th. Yeah. Incredible. And then Sherbini just, all of a sudden, it's a different gear, and she becomes Norel Sherbini again. She beats Fichter. A, a little bit, a similar match against Kennedy. It just didn't go to 5. If she pummeled Fichter in the 1st, then, boom, had a little bit of a letdown. Fichter wins the 2nd, but then... Sherbini said, no, I'm not doing this again. I, I went through this with Kennedy the round before. And then she just clobbered El Hamami. She crushed El Hamami, which is <laughs> El Hamami usually gives her more trouble than any of the big players. She plays Sherbini tougher than she plays Gohar or, any, or Amanda or any of those players. And Sherbini just left no doubt who was the best player uh, in that tournament and who's the best player in the world right now. I think there's a bit of revenge in there, Bill. Three weeks prior, Hamami had taken Sherbini down in Qatar. And we talk about this of all the great champions within the sport. There's always that pinnacle moment, that rally, that match where they, they find their on switch. And she did that against Gina Kennedy. And from that point on, she never really looked back. The, the final, that the performance that she put in against her mammy was about as well as I'd seen Shabini play for the even though she's won a lot of these events over the last period, the way that she played and dismantled her mammy, who to me looked extremely agitated. She looked too fired up, she looked too excitable, and wasn't able to play anywhere near as well as she did in Qatar. And this is what Shabini would have done. She would have watched the tapes and the videos from Qatar. She would have studied where she went wrong. And then to turn it around and, and put on that display in that final, it was an absolute battering. Absolute battering, yeah. and that that that's going to sting. That will hurt her mammy because she would have felt after Qatar she was starting to make some ground again, find her form that 
we saw maybe of 18 months ago. She lost a little bit of form in that in-between period, but she was then back playing some of her best squash. But then to get beaten like that in a final uh, was it, it would that will sting. That will sting. Yeah, Sherbini keeps rolling on, and what some of the my observations about the U.S. Open were not just in the finals, but the other notable ones. So it was really great having two Americans in the semifinals. I don't know. When is the last platinum that's ever happened? I don't even, I can't even think of one. So that's a huge achievement there. And like with the backdrop of the Olympics, just makes it pretty exciting of what a potential Olympic matchup might be. Um, some other notables seen uh, Amina Orfi make it to the quarterfinals. Probably, if not the youngest, the second youngest ever to make it to the. Which one are we going with there? I have to laugh because I asked around when she was playing Joel King and I said, I asked like all these people around while the match is going on, will she be the youngest player ever to make it a quarter of a flat? And everybody said, I don't know. I don't know. So I asked Lee Drew and Lee Drew definitively said no. And then he said, Noel Shabini made it and blah, 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 blah. The British Open, she beat Nicole David. Da, 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 da. He was so definitive about it. And I said, oh, good. Finally, somebody knows the answer. I wake up in the morning and the PSA first tweet I see. Amina Orfi, youngest player ever to make a platinum. <laughs> yeah, there was that bus, Lee Drew. There you go. Yeah. And the other one, just giving credit to another breakout performance, was Lucy Beecroft making it to the top 16. That's yeah. impressive. She moved away from the D.C. area up to New York, and she's. I think that was a good relocation for her and her game, and she's really been putting in the work and getting the results. I think you've, you've got to give some credit to Simba Mwati, I can see just see Bill there thumping his fist in appreciation. Yeah, Simba's done a terrific job with Lucy. They've not been working together that long yet, but you're already starting to see some benefits of the, the time and the periods that they're spending on court together. Simba's former Trinity graduate. He's done. He was a, a coach up in Boston for a period. Uh, he's moved around a little bit. I know that he gets a lot of advice from Paul Lesionte, who's recently retired from Trinity College. So. He's got a wealth of knowledge of the game, uh, an avid squash fan, and uh, just an all-round great guy. So yeah. I think Lucy's improved performance, you've got to give him some kudos for that. Just very quickly touching on what you're talking about, Connor, earlier. History-making with the two ladies or the two women reaching the semi-finals there. I want to give a little bit of credit to Timmy Brownell, Shah Jahan Khan, Spencer Lovejoy for doing as well as they did. However... The men, for me, have got some work to do because the ladies in America are really setting the bar quite high and they've got some catching up. They're certainly improving and they're getting better, but at the moment, there's a bit of a, a difference in levels between where the women are in their sport compared to the men. Yeah. Another great event for Team America. Come on, guys, you need to up your game a bit here. So speaking of just a last, few last things on the women's draw, the, the, the match of the tournament, I thought, was Kennedy versus El Arabi. Uh, I don't know if you guys watched that match. Uh, yeah, just yeah. just yeah. edge-of-your-seat edge stuff, just really well played and just really exciting. I, I was really pushing for El Arabi because I've been pushing her as my as my player to watch, and she just keeps falling short on me. So that match and then the Amanda Sobe overcoming Orphe. Orphe was, had just beaten Joel King, and she was primed to beat Amanda Sobe and, and Amanda's not here, not today, not in the U S anyways. So I give Amanda full credit for stopping the Orphe, the little orphan Annie train, as I call it. So shout out to Amanda, but it was funny during the El Sherbini, the El Sherbini Kennedy match, El Sherbini's hair was in full flow. We talked about it in the last podcast. She had her hair was like, she was eating her hair. Basically it was all over her face. I don't know how she even played. And the only reason I bring it up is because I saw her the next day at the center and she was coming off the practice court and I hadn't really said hi to her. And I've known Nora a bit since the juniors in 2011. And she's always made it a point to come up and say hello to me. We hadn't seen each other. And she saw me and she came over to me and hugged me and she was really sweaty. And some of her hair went in my mouth. I just want to know for the, for those squash radio fans, this that's boots on the ground right there. So just to let you know that happened. And so there you go. I just thought that needed to be said. Beautiful, beautiful moment. It was, it was a lovely moment. One of your so, highlights? It was one of my highlights. <laughs> so on to the men's. I know that and this is where Connor will drop maybe another audio clip here. Probably be a good spot. Let's drop that audio clip into the men's. I think it got scrubbed. Did we delete that, PJ? I, I have it. I have it. I'll, send, I'll resend it to you guys. So right here, go, and then we'll wait. No, I think you got deleted. So I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to make a prediction here. Bottom half of the draw is going to come out there. It's either going to be Call or Diego winning uh, the, the U.S. Open, and I'm going to say Paul Call is going to win his first U.S. Open. Yeah. Ooh. So 
How's that for analysis, boys? That's pretty good. All right. So I know everybody, pretty much everybody, all the experts were saying Farag, right? How could you bet against Farag? No, no person who knows the game of squash is going to bet against Ali Farag. Won the first Platinums of the year. Pretty much looks unbeatable. You're looking at the draws. You're saying, who's going to stop him? He has some tough early round matches. Some people went a little deeper into it and looked at matchups and maybe fatigue and maybe the lower part of the draw might have it easier. And because of all that, and because of that scientific knowledge and looking at all the analytics, Paul Call won 12-10 in the fifth. <laughs> Basically, on just a couple of fluke points after all. <laughs> Crazy craziness how close this all is. I was looking at some of the matches and Paul Call almost lost to Masadi in the first round. Or the second, I'm sorry. Yeah, Paul, Cole, Paul had four or five set matches uh, in the five. five, five Baptiste Masai yeah. is a good player, right? But he shouldn't be, he yeah. bought Paul Call to five. And I'm like, oh my God, my prediction, maybe Call's not ready for them. Maybe he's not back yet. But then Call goes 60 minutes against Ibrahim. That's his only th- only one that he, he won in four. And then Mazen, Elias, Farag, all five games down in all of them in the quarters, in the semis, and then up 2-0 in the fifth to Ali. Ali shows just ridiculous fortitude in, call, in crawling back and getting back into that match. And I, I still can't believe to call one, actually. I, I thought everything was going Ali's way, and Ali was going to win that fifth game. And he kept, there were so many moments where he basically had a clear winner and then would tin out. Like, it was just, it was, uh, I mean, for the finals, though, that's what you want. You want one that comes down to the wire, down to the last couple points, like the drama venue was just off the charts. Everyone was captivated. Yes, I was still taking Ali at every point because, I, like I said, I kept betting against him, and I promised I wouldn't. That didn't work out for me. <laughs> and Ali's semi against Momin was another epic clash, right? Momin turning back the clock at age 35. put He was up two games to love. There were, there were some moments in that, if you I would say, more so than the call match, although the call match for drama was just good. I think the quality of play in the Momin match may have been better, is that if that's possible. Just some of the rallies that were going on and some of the, some of the saves that Ali made in big points where he was out of the point, basically. And he somehow stretched kept the rally going. He had a, a lob I, in, I think it was the, the fourth game, maybe to keep himself in. Like he hadn't hit a lob the whole game. It hit like just an incredible lob under pressure to change the tenor of that game. Just incredible stuff. Al- Ali was probably the most deserved winner of the tournament that he didn't win based on his performance. If that makes any sense, it was just in, in, in losing, he was still awe inspiring. Yeah. He's the match against Tarek Moman was one of the best matches of, watch between those two. I think his record against Tarek is quite significant. If you give me one sec, I'll be able to bring that stat up. But normally when Ali plays against Tarek Moman, or if anybody plays against Tarek Moman, you know what you're going to get with Moman. You're going to have these periods where he just hits absolutely outrageous winner after winner. And he'll go into this defensive mode where he doesn't make any unforced errors. And then all of a sudden, he'll have this complete drop-off where he can barely keep the ball out of the tin. So Farag was almost trying to play in expectation or anticipation of these drops in performance, but they just never came from Tarek. He just went through the entire match. Uh, what have we got here? Farag against Moment. 16-4 in the head-to-head Crazy. for Farag against wow. Moment. Obviously a massive head-on favourite to, to take that quite comfortably Farag but if Tarek Moment Tarek Moment actually played like that when he won the world championships in 2018 when he took down Cole in that final so for Farag to absorb that and withstand that level of quality from Tarek Moment and then have to go through and do it again against Paul Cole Farag wasn't at his best against Paul Cole he wasn't allowed to necessarily play the way he wanted to I think the fact that semi was such a brutal semi against Tarek would have certainly taken a bit of a, a chunk out of Farag. But this is, what again, what makes Farag so great. He's two love down, Cole showing no impact of the 82-minute battle that he had the night before or any effects of the, the previous three rounds before that. And, play, and he was playing off of his head, Paul Cole. Farag is then slowly chipping away, manages to win the third, and all of a sudden everybody's thinking this is game on. This is going to be reminiscent of what Farag does. He'll win the third and then end up coming through in the fourth. But that fifth game performance from Paul Cole, was uh, that was probably one of the fifth game, best fifth game 
games that I've seen for a long so, time. Just the back and forth, the qu- the quality between the two was just, and the drama was just insane. Well, and my joke when the match was going on was, I think Ali's was trying to make up for last year's finals that he pulled out pretty fast and just like <laughs> doing the drama. And he's, oh, I'll make this go to five and do that. But again, I was yeah. wrong again. Yeah. He didn't pull it out. But it was really interesting in hearing Paul in the post-match just talking about that the two months that he had off that he could really put the hard work in the off season and the training he did and look at the different stats making. And so I think that highlights when PJs as with the athletes, it's like, but you make the gains in the off season or in that period. And he, Paul was back on form. And, and tell me this PJ from your analytical point of view, what is the, what was the difference? Like, why is Paul called? Why did he win this tournament as opposed to hasn't won a tournament in so long in so well, in so long as being relative statement, what's what changed where now Paul calls back at the top of the game again? Uh, this is credit to Paul Cole. It's one of the things that's allowed him or enabled him to achieve what he has in the game. He's always striving. He's always looking to improve. He had that period where he won the British Open a couple of years ago. He never dropped a game in that particular event. The players on tour then started to figure out the style that Paul was bringing to the court. So they obviously adapted their own games and managed to find a way of breaking that down. Paul Cole has now had to go away again and work on some technical areas. We started to see glimpses of that in Paris. He had a very good matchup with Farag in the semi there. I think it was four games, but pushed him close. A couple of uh, technical tweaks. And this is where I feel that it's a perfect little scenario for Paul Cole at the moment. He's got his base in Holland. He spends a week or so over in Birmingham with Robert Owen. Now when he's travelling around on tour, we're starting to see a lot more of Rodney Martin who's very good friends with Rob Owen. They talk a lot about about Paul's game. So Paul can now get some tweaks of the, the technique while he's actually live at the event, which will instill his confidence, and obviously that will continue to grow. We saw a much higher preparation on the backhand side. So his angle of attack coming into the ball was a lot steeper. The length was a little bit more penetrating. That combined the, the biggest area of Paul's game that we've always spoke about as in the commentary team is the lack of head speed and intent when he's taking the ball in short. Paul almost looked a bit scared to take his opponents into the front of the court, which baffled us because he's one of the, he's probably the best mover. Actually, Farag's probably the best mover on tour, but he's up there. He's one of the best movers in the world. Never has a bad movement day. So he could retrieve whatever it was that the opponent would throw at him, but he would seem so apprehensive to go in short. So... What we're starting to see now is when he's got the opportunities off of the decent length or the better length, the ball's going into the front with so much more bite and a lot quicker. And that, you could tell, was starting to do a lot more damage to the opponents. So that was the, they were the two big standout things for me. And you, you're starting to see it in his performance. And, and you could tell he, him mentioning it, he's starting to look at his legacy. And he's only, I think, 31 years old. He's gearing towards the big event. So he's not playing the grasshopper this week. He's not playing every event like a lot of these other players are. He's gearing his training and his season to win the cha- the Platinums, it seems. Like. Yeah, we, we often hear this, the old cliche of uh, team. Uh, but Paul does have a very good team around him. He's experienced now. He knows his, his body. He knows how to get the best out of it and how to get the balance right between too little and too much. And I think he'll start to do exactly what you're saying there. He'll target those majors now. And it's going to be interesting to see how things start to unfold with, obviously, Ali's got a bit of a lead up there at the moment, but you've got got Diego Elias coming into the fray. You've got Paul Cole in the mix. And let's not forget... Stuff for a sale is now back. Right, so right. Speak, speaking of that, be, before we jump off, just a quick question, and this kind of leads into the assault talk, is the Timmy Brownell-Dimitri Steinman match that happened in yeah. the second round, in the first round, actually. Obviously, Dimitri got a conduct game, which lost the match because it was the fifth game. He brutally hip-checked Timmy Brownell at center court. And then, from what I understand, I didn't witness this, but other folks who did said that Dimitri had quite a meltdown off the court and outside the court, yeah. so much so that there were like law enforcement officers being being looking at him, basically. I, I don't know Dimitri that well. I don't think I've ever seen that side of him, but it seems like that that is something that the PSA needs to look at, right? They need to they need to say, hey, if you're suspending Mustafa Asal for his on-court antics, something like that 
deserves maybe a harsher penalty than what a saw got. Without a doubt, I was there. I saw the whole incident unfold. That the hip check at the end, where the decision wasn't actually made by the central referee. Um, it was a decision that was made by the video ref. I think it might have been Jason Foster who was in the video ref's chair who had to inform the central referee that the the magnitude of the offence warranted a conduct game. Initially, I think it was only a conduct warning, but yeah, the conduct game was awarded. Dimitri came off, was arguing continually with the referee. Decision was made. The match was over. Steinman then walks off, takes the racket from the, the bag, starts to walk out. As he's starting to leave the arena, he's, he's shouting, just frustration. It was more a noise, really, just, just screaming out in frustration. And I'm following him out. As, as we're walking out of the venue, the police officer that was standing there just says, hey, buddy, just calm down a bit, calm down a bit. To which Steinman just ignored, because I think he, he'd seen red mist at this stage. He then walks outside the, the Ireland Spectre Centre, just turns to the right-hand side. Again, just almost drops. He doesn't drop to his knees, but he goes into a full squat and just screams at the top of his voice again. Police officer then repeats, hey, buddy, keep your noise down, calm down, just relax, calm down. Steinman then walks further up the road with the police officer following him. Steinman run, turns around the corner and all you can hear is the obliteration of his racket <laughs> on, on the side wall as the officer's literally just standing there with his, with his hands in his vest. PSA have been left no alternative. He'll definitely receive a ban. It will probably be somewhere around three months. That will be for the, the incident of the conduct game. It now will depend on whether US Squash or the venue want to take any further action as to what they saw. And it's unfortunate because Dimitri Steinman is not a bad guy. He's. It sounds like he made a very good and a sincere apology straight after. It, this is not something that you associate with him. Complete head off, just a moment of madness. There's a lot of things going on off of the court, which are causing some frustrations for him. And it all just came to a head and he just he blew his top, basically. So it's going to be a harsh lesson to him. I don't think we'll ever see it again from him, but it, this one is definitely going to... Dr. PJ, I wish you had followed him out with a camera as closely as you were following Ali Farag getting hit in the mouth during the final. <laughs> you were right on top of that action. If you had followed Dimitri out with a camera, I think we could have our, a viral video. Congrats on your diagnosis of Ali Farag's mouth, by the way. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Yeah. I was literally right there. It was. I know. Was Ali, Ali looked up at you like that. Is that the diagnosis that, that you know? <laughs> that being said, so that's the U.S. Open. The Grasshopper is coming up, and, and I was just looking at the draw of the Grasshopper, and our first round match of the Grasshopper is Dimitri Simon against George Parker. So for squash, now that we're in the Olympics and nothing that anybody could do at this point, short, short of something like catastrophic, get us kicked out of the Olympics, can we just put those two guys no rackets, lock the door? send him to the tee and just have him go at it. That would be awesome. No, I don't think that would be a very long fight. No, I, I, I don't think so either. But I'm looking forward to some fireworks in that one. Hopefully, Dimitri's, that was a one-off for Dimitri. We know George has his issues on court. and But the two of them together, I just think it's ironic that two of the, probably the most explosive characters with Dimitri being added to that yeah. just because of that one incident being thrown into the first round. But the big part of the grasshopper is that Mustafa Saul's back. So Mustafa yeah. Salt is yeah. back at the Grasshopper. Be interesting to see. The last time he came back after a long layoff, he did quite well. So it'll be interesting to see what he does here. I am expecting and hoping for a very different Mustafa Sal. I know that behind the scenes, there have been a few tweaks within his camp, which has been very much needed. There's been a bit of a shift in that respect. He wants to get better. He wants to improve. He feels that with everyone that was in and around him previously. It, not that it was being encouraged, but it wasn't being discouraged either with some of the antics and the movement and that kind of stuff. So you can tell he's, he absolutely loves the sport. He wants to play. And I think hopefully we're now seeing a, a little bit of maturity with him. I really, really hope I've got it right on this one that when he comes back, we're, we're going to start to see things tidying up a little bit. Because we do need him. We missed him. We haven't, whatever you say about these events previously, as great as the squash has been, we, we've missed that, the excitement factor and the, the, the compulsive viewing that we have when a cell is around. Yeah, I think, I really hope as well that Mustafa comes back and has taken into consideration the changes he needs to make in his game to be able to play. 
I agree. He's appointment viewing. Is that your line, Bill? Definitely. (laughs) Certainly electric there. But it really shows that also the sport is bigger than any one individual. And there's if he continues to do it, the PSA will just ban him again. And then he's not going to get too many more strikes before it's a lifetime ban. And hopefully he's also taking into consideration the Olympics and really trying to clean up his act there. So I think the sport... We want him just as much as he wants the sport, and I'm hoping that he he cleans his act up. I, I heard from the person who sat two rows behind me in Houston, again, my, my, my squash source, that he has admitted, and just as PJ says, that he needs to change. He admits that what he's done in the past is not right. He hopes that he could change. And if he can't, if he gets on court and realizes that these are force of habits and this is just, just the way he's going to play, that he's going to walk away from squash. So I, I, I heard yeah. two rows behind the well, the very well-informed person who sat two rows behind me in Houston. So lastly, before we go, Chicago, uh, I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't. I am headed out to Chicago to MC the the Lifetime Fitness Chicago 30K for those folks who, who, who like myself, who love watching the players on the next rung down who are fighting to get into these Platinums. Keep an eye on those results. We have Mohamed El Sherbini is the number one seed. Ali Abu Alainen is the number two seed there. Portends to be a good tournament. So I'll be headed out to Chicago and I, I will be sure to give a full report on our next episode. Look forward to it. <laughs> All right, guys, that was awesome. We have big things to come. I think what we should do, I think a great episode for episode notes and anybody from Squash Radio fans who want to chime in on this, it would be helpful to us and also would be good banter is who do you think is going to be on these teams in 2028? Because Again, as we said, a lot of these current players are not going to be there any longer. There's some, <laughs> there's some players who are going to be representing their countries and possibly other countries that we might not even think about. So squashradio at gmail.com. Shoot us your ideas, and, and we'll go through that in one of the next episodes. I can see the enthusiasm is overwhelming for that idea. Thanks, guys. It was, it was great seeing you again. Always a pleasure. All right, boys. Fun times. Till next time. Thanks for listening to another show on SQR Squash Radio. We really do appreciate you taking the time to listen. And we have a quick ask. In an effort to help us grow, if you have a quick minute, please consider sharing an episode with a friend who might be interested or leaving a rating on any of the platforms you listen to your podcast. It would mean a lot to me and the rest of the team. Thanks so much and have a great day.